Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lisenby. Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lisenby. And listeners, welcome to the third and final episode of our Mythological Creatures series. Yes, I can't believe it. Uh, This series has been so much fun. And Kate, I know you and I were already talking off air about maybe adding an extra episode sometime after the new year to be determined, because we've received several messages on Instagram from listeners curious about all sorts of beings that we haven't had time to talk about. Mm -hmm. It would be so fun. And, you know, it was so difficult. I know you and I went back and forth quite a bit about which which creatures we wanted to talk about or answer listener questions about um, and research. And so I know I would love to do another round of these conversations. So Listeners, if you have votes about what you'd like Kristen and I to talk about, definitely let us know. And also, speaking of listener questions, we received this wonderful question from Adventure, who asked if we could speak a little bit about the Leviathan. And so, Kristen, and I know that you went and did a little bit of, of digging about this mythological beast. Yeah, uh, this creature was new to me, but I did dig around and I discovered that the Leviathan is a giant sea serpent or sea monster, mainly mentioned in Christian lore. It says the Leviathan was crafted by the hands of God and technically two of them were made, a male and a female, but for some reason it was decided that one must go, so the female was killed I have a lot of thoughts about this, um, but from her scales and skin, magical clothing was made for Adam and Eve. And I don't know if I'm reaching here, Kate, tell me if I am, but I was just reading about the Leviathan as a sea serpent and how the female was exiled or actually murdered. But I just kept thinking of Lilith, the Sumerian mm-hmm. goddess who was adopted into Hebraic myth, um, most famously as a first wife of Adam. Because in this tale, Lilith can't stand Adam's patriarchal behavior, so she flees the Garden of Eden and chooses to live with her demon children in the Red Sea. She sneaks back into the Garden of Eden as a serpent and offers it to Eve, the forbidden fruit. She's represented in some stories as like a sex-craved succubus who feeds off our life force and our dreams, but to others, including myself— Lilith is a dark goddess who can teach us how to swim amongst our shadows and come out stronger than ever. You know, I don't think you're reaching at all there. Um, The whole time you were talking, I just had chills. Um, Just, you know, thinking about this figure choosing to live in the Red Sea with her demon children. um, And then how this story perhaps got twisted or changed or morphed over time. Um, I think that's a really, really beautiful perspective. 
Thank you. Yeah, it's probably really obvious, but I just, (laughs) I love Lilith and the Leviathan may have absolutely nothing to do with her. Um, But to our listener who reached out asking about this creature and if it truly is as terrible as they say, perhaps it's worth investigating Lilith and some other serpents and sea dwellers that share a similar story and see if they share anything with you. Yeah, I'm really obsessed with this take. Uh, I'm also just curious, too, like if there are listeners who are a little bit more familiar with the Leviathan and want to share, mm-hmm. uh, definitely, definitely reach out to us. Um, or even if you have things that support this Lilith perspective, I know we would love to hear. And, yeah. you know, I think that the, the listener reached out and was looking for a completely different perspective. And so this is, this is great. And also just a true, reminder um kind of our theme for today that there's always more to every story than meets the eye for today's journey into the realm of mythical creatures i'm taking you to meet the famed lion eagle better known as the griffin If you've never met the griffin before, look for a noble creature that has the head, wings, and torso of an eagle and the tail and hindquarters of a lion. Sometimes its tail resembles that of a serpent. The griffin's body contains both feathers and fur and is said to be large enough to block out the sun. In Greek mythology, griffins are loyal pets and guardians of the gods. Fun fact for you, Kristen, uh, the griffin is my alma mater's mascot, so the Sarah Lawrence griffins. (laughs) Oh, I'm jealous. We need more mythological beings as mascots. And that really like, yeah, and it feels like so special and fitting because the griffins, um, you know, were seen as guardians and allies most of the time. Mm -hmm. In the case of the solar god Apollo, griffins pulled his chariot across the sky. Same goes for Nemesis, the goddess of justice. Because of the griffin's relationship to justice and wisdom, they were allies to the Greek goddess, Athena. Griffins live in the mountains where they can keep watch over Mount Olympus. Some people believe that if you see a griffin, gold is nearby. And according to stories, they're probably right. Legend says that griffins make golden nests called iris to raise their young. The griffin's eggs can be just as valuable as the nest, since the creature occasionally lays giant eggs made from agate. In Sir John Manderville's Travels, a 14th century travel memoir, Manderville says that when a griffin dies, from its wings and ribs, people make magical bows and arrows. In ancient Egypt, the pharaohs sought griffins for companions and guardians. Griffins could detect poison, and their talons were often hollowed out to make cups that could change color or warn the drinker of harmful ingredients. Griffins could also help people find treasure, but punish those who stole treasure meant for another. So sort of like a double-edged sword there. Mm. Its relationship to poison and, and being used to detect poison is so reminiscent of the unicorn stories as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have a lot of overlapping themes here today. The griffin appears in ancient Egypt and Persia as early as 4000 BC. 
On the Greek island of Crete, archaeologists have noted griffin imagery and frescoes in the throne room of a Bronze Age palace dating back to the 15th century BC. In the book Breverton's Phantasmagoria, a compendium of monsters, myths, and legends, it says that people searching for a, quote, real-life origin story for the griffin have suggested this mythical creature was born from sightings of cats catching birds, but it's sort of been debunked, and a more recent theory is that Scythian nomads, who um, were rumored to hunt for the griffin's golden nests uh, many, many, many years ago— often talk to Greeks about mining gold deposits in the mountains of Mongolia and China. And in this area, there are thousands of well-preserved protoceratops dinosaur fossils and their fossilized eggs still in nests. So since the lion-sized dinosaurs had beaked faces and large claws, they may be the model for the griffin we know today. The griffin has several cousins, one of them being the hippogriffin, or the horse eagle. The hippogriffin has the top half of, you know, a griffin or eagle, and the hindquarters of a horse instead of a lion. The origin of the hippogriffin allegedly came from the Roman poet Virgil's metaphor, to cross griffins with horses, which meant to attempt the impossible. Another cousin is the lupogriffin, or the dog eagle, so half griffin, half dog. And in Persian mythology, the lupogriffin might also be known as the simurg. It's said to roost in the tree of life and live in the land of the sacred homa plant, whose seeds cure all evil. The simurg, or lupogriffin, has a lifespan of 1,700 years, and when it takes its final breath, it erupts in a celebration of flames— similar to the phoenix, uh, which we talked about in our first installment of this series. In a mystical or psychological sense, J.E. Surlott's A Dictionary of Symbols says that the griffin is like the dragon and that it guards the roads to salvation. It's sometimes depicted standing beside the tree of life or another similar symbol as it represents psychic energy and cosmic force classic tie-in between our research as always. <laughs> I know. I knew I had to mention it when I saw that line. And another mythical creature that shares similarities with the griffin, um, you know, beyond the phoenix and unicorn and dragon, is the sphinx. So the sphinx has a human head, falcon wings, and the body of a lion. In Greek myth, the sphinx's head is that of a woman, but in Egyptian lore, it's masculine. Like the griffin, sphinxes were protective and would often guard the doorways leading in and out of temples. Oh, and Christian, I just want to say a big thank you to Tony P., who wrote in specifically asking about the sphinx. So thanks, Tony. Yeah, thank you, Tony. And sort of a fun fact here, but so many writers and artists have been influenced by the Sphinx over the years. And I wasn't even looking, but I came across writings from Edgar Allan Poe and Oscar Wilde and Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, just to name a few. But perhaps the most famous Sphinx is the Great Sphinx of Giza, a limestone monument that stands 240 feet long from paw to tail, 66 feet high from the base to the top of the head, and 62 feet wide at its haunches. This statue was believed to be built by Pharaoh Khafre around 2500 BC, but others argue it can be dated as far back as 10,000 BC. 
According to an article on History.com, quote, Khafre associated himself with the god Horus, and the great sphinx may have been known as Horus on the horizon, as it was during the New Kingdom from 1570 to 1069 BC, end quote. So podcast field trip someday or what? Because like I'm dying to go. <laughs> yes, please. Tamed Wild Retreat 2023. Yes. Putting it out there now. <laughs> Shelby. <laughs> yes. We have so many things to investigate. Um, I came across so many interesting tidbits that I want to share, um, you know, like this theory from the Ancient Egypt Research Associates that says the term for Sphinx in ancient Egyptian was Shesep Ankh Atum, but that translates to living image of a tomb. I know we've mentioned uh, this god before, but Atum was the original creator god in Egyptian mythology during the Old Kingdom, and he created himself out of chaos and was incarnated every day as the setting sun. From an article on grunge.com, quote, Just like the Sphinx, Atum transgressed boundaries between being and nothingness. So it's no surprise that the Egyptians associated such a mighty beast with their most formidable deity. An article in Smithsonian Magazine claims that we call this monument the Great Sphinx of Giza, but the term Sphinx comes from Greek mythology and likely came into use thousands of years after the statue was built. James Allen, an Egyptologist at Brown University, said, quote, The Egyptians didn't write history, so we have no solid evidence for what its builders thought the Sphinx was. Certainly something divine— presumably the image of a king, but beyond that, it is anyone's guess. Likewise, the statue's symbolism is unclear, though inscriptions from the era refer to Rudi, a double lion god that sat at the entrance to the underworld and guarded the horizon where the sun rose and set. End quote. Like the griffin, the sphinx is associated with the sun. Although there is no agreement as far as the definite purpose of the Sphinx of Giza, many scholars believe its construction was done with astrological alignments in mind, likely related to equinoxes or solstices. There are tunnels and shafts within the Sphinx, um, some of which were created by humans over the years to repair you know, various areas of the statue. And although nothing is conclusive, my favorite unsupported claim is that if you can navigate the Sphinx's tunnels, it will take you to a secret occult library. In the Greek world, the Sphinx is a destructive demon known for her riddles. The Sphinx was said to guard the entrance to Thebes and would require travelers to answer a riddle before allowing them safe passage. Some say that if the passerby answered the Sphinx's riddle incorrectly, you know, they'd be strangled or killed or have their crops blighted. However, if they answered correctly, the Sphinx would kill herself. Of course, nobody can say what the riddle was, you know, without a doubt, but there are theories. Pliny the Elder said that Sphinxes were native to Ethiopia, a sentiment echoed in Greek lore. Allegedly, Hera, although some suggest Ares, summoned the Sphinx to be the guardian of Thebes. In these stories, the Sphinx's riddle was as follows. Which creature has one voice and yet becomes four-footed and two-footed and three-footed? 
or another version, what walks on four feet in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three at night? It was Oedipus who finally solved the riddle by answering, man, who crawls on all fours as a baby, then walks on two feet as an adult, and then uses a walking stick in old age. Because he was able to conquer the Finks, Oedipus became a hero. He married the princess, uh, who unbeknownst to him was his mother. And I'm not going to go into the full story of Oedipus because it's long and it's like a winding tale, but it's really easy to find online with a quick search if anyone is interested. In other versions of this story, including the ancient Gascon version, the Sphinx is so stunned that someone answered her correctly that she tossed out a follow-up riddle which was, there are two sisters, one gives birth to the other, and she in turn gives birth to the first. Who are the two sisters? The answer to this is day and night, which again, Oedipus answered without hesitation. Some believe that the story of Oedipus and the Sphinx symbolizes a transition between old religious practices and the more modern ones of the time. The death of the Sphinx could suggest the end of the old ways and the rise of the new Olympian gods. However we see the Sphinx, this mythological creature is stitched together with mystery. It is a keeper of knowledge, and although may appear intimidating to some, the Sphinx appreciates those of us who are seekers. It is a sun-worshipping solar shield, and in the metaphysical sense is believed to usher us into higher stages of knowing, which sometimes means revisiting our personal ambitions and considering how they align with those of humanity and our collective soul. Some suggest that if the Sphinx approaches you with a riddle and we do not know the answer, just try to make them laugh. Because despite its serious appearance, the Sphinx has a great sense of humor and loves a good joke. Kristen, thank you for these tales and information about the griffin and the Sphinx. Such Mm -hmm. beautiful winged beasts. Um, Today, listeners, I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about the mythological creatures that we call dragons. Dragons have captured the hearts and minds of many a young witch, and I remember keeping a copy of The Book of Dragons by E. Nesbitt in my backpack for many a family vacation. One of my favorite writers from childhood, Tamara Pierce, wrote, quote, you haven't been bit till a dragon does it, end quote. And there's something in this fire, this bite, that is so compelling. These creatures are simultaneously fierce and wise. They have been depicted as gold hoarding and brave. They sometimes bond with humans, and sometimes they act as the comic relief in stories. They are the consorts to the gods, they bring good fortune, they haunt and rule the hallways of history, they make a map of folklore. I wanted to begin today by saying, here are dragons, in reference to the medieval maps I had seen drawings of. However, in doing my research for today, I actually found out that this is a historical inaccuracy. I had always thought that seeing here be dragons on an ancient map meant 
dangerous or unexplored territory, and although several early maps, such as the Theatrum Orbis Terrarum, have illustrations of mythological creatures for decoration, the phrase itself is an anachronism. Until the ostrich egg globe was offered for sale in 2012 at the London Map Fair held at the Royal Geographical Society, the only known historical use of this phrase in Latin from Here Are Dragons was the Hunt Lennox globe, dating back to 1504. Earlier maps contain a variety of references to mythological and real creatures, but the ostrich egg globe and its twin, the Lennox globe, are the only known surviving globes to bear this phrase. Just a small sidebar there for some fun map facts for my fellow nerds, but (laughs) returning to the dragons, the origins of dragons are murky and ancient, much like many of the creatures that we've covered in these conversations, but the word dragon first entered the English language in the 13th century, derived from the Latin draconis and the Greek dracons. Adrian Mayer, a historian of ancient science and a classical folklorist, suggests that dragon images are based on folk knowledge or exaggerations of living reptiles alive today. She also argues that dragons may have been inspired by ancient discoveries of fossils belonging to dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals, much like your uh, hippogriffs and griffins, Mm -hmm. Kristen. In an article in the Smithsonian, quote, ancient people may have discovered dinosaur fossils and understandably misinterpreted them as the remains of dragons. Chang Ku, a Chinese historian from the 4th century BC, mislabeled a fossil in what is now the Sichuan province. Just take a look at a fossilized stegosaurus, for example, and you might see why. The giant beasts averaged 30 feet in length, were typically 14 feet tall, and were covered in armored plates and spikes for defense. End quote. Smithsonian also describes potential quote unquote real life origin stories of dragons as Nile crocodiles, the goanna, and whales which all of these make perfect sense to me because crocodiles are absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. The earliest depictions of dragons portray them as giant snakes in the mythologies and Mesopotamian art and literature, where dragon-like creatures are described in the Epic of Creation from the late 2nd millennium BC. Ancient Indian sources like the Rig Veda, one of the oldest texts in the world, dated back to 1500 BCE, speak of the giant dragon, and listeners forgive me all of my dragon pronunciations today, but Vitra, who had said to be killed by the god Indra to release the waters of heaven onto earth. In Mesopotamian myth, the god Marduk battled with the dragon Tiamat for supremacy over human beings, and in the Zoroastrian tradition, dragons were known as Azi or serpents, and had important roles in scriptures, mostly as demonic creatures who, quote, swallowed horses, who swallowed men, over whom poison flowed the height of a spear, end quote. In Zoroastrian literature from Iran and Persia, dragons such as the Avestan great snake were seen as the personification of sin and greed. 
In ancient Egyptian mythology, Apep or Apophis is a giant serpentine creature who resides in the realm of the dead or below the horizon, born from Ra's umbilical cord. In ancient Greek mythology, dragons played an important role, appearing with poisonous spit, although fiery breath is attested to from several myths and has survived the test of time. But many Greek heroes fought or encountered these draconic creatures. Heracles slayed the Hydra. Jason drugged a sleepless dragon guarding the Golden Fleece. Zeus battled the monster Typhon, and Cadmus fought the dragon of Ares. In Asia, notably China, dragons were associated with good fortune and still are, and would traditionally symbolize potent and auspicious powers. Dragons would often accompany gods and demigods, and it is most likely that the Chinese dragon influenced many Asian countries, with Korean dragons being depicted with slightly longer beards and sometimes shown carrying a giant orb. I know that many Chinese emperors and elites would claim to be descendants of dragons mm -hmm. and believe that this creature could control the weather. Uh, and so I found this passage from Wang Fu, a Chinese scholar from the Han Dynasty, that says, quote, When rain is to be expected, the dragons sing, and their voices are like the sound made by striking copper basins. Their saliva can produce all sorts of perfume. End quote. And I just thought this was so interesting because even, you know, when speaking about thunder and lightning storms and dragons, they make it sound so poetic and not at all like evil or dangerous like the dragons I remember from like Western folklore and childhood. Yeah, that's such a poem. Um, mm -hmm. Voices singing like the sound of uh, by striking a copper basin that's so... So beautiful. And it's so interesting, too, like you're saying, like the saliva here is a perfume where mm -hmm. in Greek mythology, it becomes a poison. So the yeah. different difference between perfume and poison. Yeah, it's really potent. In in Philippine mythology, the Bakunawa means uh, bent snake, and it's a serpent-like dragon, and it's believed, like you're talking about with the weather, to be the causes of eclipses and earthquakes, rains, and wind, and it's sometimes known as Naga, which is from synchronization with the Hindu-Buddhist serpent deity Naga, and... Um, these characters are also responsible for eclipses of the sun and, and moon. The people of the Americas created their own draconic legends um, independently from the rest of the world, which is so fascinating and, and beautiful. The Yucatec Maya worshipped Colcolcan, a Mesoamerican serpent deity, while the Aztecs worshipped Quetzalcoatl, whose name comes from Nuhatl language and means precious serpent or feathered serpent. In mythology of Andean civilizations of South America, the Amaroka or Katari is a mythical serpent or dragon most associated with the Incan empires. In Inca mythology, Amaroka is a huge double-headed serpent that dwells underground at the bottom of lakes and rivers. 
And then several dragons appear in the cultures of indigenous American people. In the mythology of the Illini people, murals painted on bluffs overlook the Mississippi River, and they depict the Piazza bird, a draconic figure that may have been an older iconograph from the large Mississippian culture city of Cahokia. One of the most common forms of Native American dragons is a recurring figure among many of the indigenous tribes of the Southeast Woodlands and other tribal groups, and this is the horned serpent, which is also associated with water, rain, lightning, and thunder. And I love all of these cultural weather overlaps, mm-hmm. Kristen. It's yeah, so cool. The, the modern image of the dragon is then kind of developed in Europe during the Middle Ages through the combination of the snake-like dragons of the classical Greco-Roman literature and the references to, you know, European dragons preserved in the Bible and European folk traditions. The 11th and 13th centuries saw the height of European interest in dragons as living creatures. The oldest recognizable image of a fully modern European dragon appears in a hand-painted illustration from a medieval manuscript which was produced in around 1260. European dragons are generally depicted as greedy and gluttonous with voracious appetites, living in rivers or having an underground lair or cave, which cue smog here. Mm -hmm. Dragons and dragon motifs are featured in many works of literature, particularly, you know, in fantasy, which we love. Um, And one of the most iconic modern dragons, in my opinion, is Smog from Tolkien's classic novel, The Hobbit. Um, But they can also be found in The Ursi Cycle from Ursula K. Le Guin, George R.R. Martin's series, uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, which of course, you know, leads us into the HBO adaption of Game of Thrones, and newly House of the Dragon, which we love. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also just can't forget to mention, you know, Puff the Magic Dragon, the dragon from the Page Master, (laughs) the dragon from Sleeping Beauty, um, Quest for Camelot, like a beloved, beloved movie. Mm -hmm. I had the soundtrack. I thought Kaylee was the best. There's Mushu in Mulan. I mean, the dragon in Spirited Away, just so beautiful. Um, The dragon in Shrek, How to Train Your Dragon, Avatar, you know, even My Little Pony, The Flight of the Dragons, and more. There's just so many. Kristen, do you have any favorites? Any favorite dragons? I mean, I feel like you've named them. Um, definitely Puff the Magic Dragon. That's like mm-hmm. childhood right there. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, of course, Shrek, right? Like, mm-hmm. we can't forget. The words to Puff the Magic Dragon just live rent-free mm-hmm. in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Same. You know, Ursula K. Le Guin wrote that people who deny the existence of dragons are often eaten by dragons from within. Mm, I love that. This is what I'm going to say to all my muggle friends. Yes. And there's just something so potent about these two small sentences stitched together. You know, dragons acknowledge ferocity. They acknowledge the fringe on the map, the creation of folklore. They are both the best and the worst sides of humanity projected onto by those who write the story. They alchemize with their fire, they stretch their wings and soar across the sky. 
They live in the deepest caverns of the earth, beneath the mounds and the water, and yet can be seen high above our heads, casting shadows over the many lands, all of the lands where they have been honored and feared in the stories. And so, the dragon appears to remind us that we too carry a bit of dragon fire in our hearts, and that we hold their stories, ancient as they are, dreaming one day of perhaps riding a dragon too. Thank you so much, Kate, for guiding us through the land of dragons. Listeners, if you have any dragons, sphinx, griffin, or leviathan lore, send us a message on Instagram or email us at podcast at tamedwild.com. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at k8ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune in to next week's episode for a magical conversation with a very special guest. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time. Mm-hmm.